Freedom. Everyone wants it, but knowing where to look for it is another matter. And to make matters worse, the world is full of things that feel like freedom, but might just get us more tangled up in everything we're trying to escape. How much freedom can money buy? How much money? How free are you on a tropical vacation? Would uploading your consciousness into the cloud and downloading it into a robot avatar on Alpha Centauri make you more free? How about falling in love again? How about three margaritas with friends? Or six? A better government? Less government? No government at all? I'm here today with Joseph Goldstein, a great and beloved teacher of Buddhist ideas and practice in the West and a personal inspiration to me to talk about freedom of the mind and spirit and the kinds of effort and insight that can lead there. Joseph is the co-founder of Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, and the author most recently of Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening. We spoke once before just about a year ago. I'm so happy to be here with you again, Joseph. It's great. Great to be here. I, I think I want to start with um, something decidedly less sexy than freedom, which is ethics, sila, Buddhist ethics. Um, and I guess I should say for the audience that kind of the three steps on the path, as I understand it, are a grounding in ethics, like awareness and practice, then a calming and concentration of the mind, and then insight, an understanding of, of dharma and the way things work. Mm -hmm. I'd like to talk a little bit about ethics because I think a lot of people get into meditation, get into thinking about Buddhism and dharma through, well, meditation, which is a rather different and interesting and, as I said, kind of sexy thing, different from our everyday life. But ethics, maybe not so much, especially for people in the West, maybe something they're trying to get away from. Yeah, so I mean, ethics, in terms of the Buddha's teachings yeah. and our own practice of them, ethics, which really means the ethics of non-harming, it's like cultivating non-harming behavior in a whole range of domains. Right. And so it's essential, it's foundational for really any spiritual practice. And it brings so many different benefits. One of the great benefits of committing oneself to the ethics of non-harming is non-remorse. Right. Because then we're li living our lives in a way that doesn't cause us to feel regret or remorse about things we've done. It's an uplifting and a stabilizing aspect of the whole path. I think what's tricky or what can be tricky for a lot of people, and I don't, I don't want to make clear distinctions between types of people per se, but I think that speaking for myself, I'm the inheritor of a kind of like tradition of, of trying to get past old ways that kept people mm -hmm. stuck in rigid and ritualistic ways of life. And I'm therefore squirrely and nervous about falling into a mindset of piety about practice. I mean, I yes, am, yeah. I think, in some ways, a deeply ethical person, yeah. but, but the idea of, eth of, of adhering to a set of ethical principles that were determined, you know, right. 2,500 years ago is very frightening. There's a difference between being moralistic mm -hmm. and being moral. Sure. And, and so when we speak of morality or ethics, it often comes in our culture and society with a whole moralistic connotation. And so people are confusing. Thou shalt not. Yeah. Know, yeah, yeah. And, and often involved with people very attached to a particular set of ideas and they get self-righteous about it. So th there's a shadow side to it. Right. But the essence of ethics or morality, in the way I see it, is simply to refrain from harmful behavior. 
Right. So it's not so much, even though there are kind of basic formulations of, you know, basic ethical principles, but the essence of it all is, can we live in a way that doesn't do harm to ourselves or others? And I would say, I would say in society or in New York City, no, you cannot live in a way that does not do harm. Totally. I think sometimes you are making decisions between two alternatives, neither of which is desirable, one of which might do less harm well, than the th other. Well, then that's the starting place. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, and so it's not to, it's not to have some kind of absolutist sure, view sure. on all this. And one of the interesting things about the Buddhist teachings about this, they're not framed, they're not framed as commandments. Right. You know, so it's not thou shalt not do this, and if you do, who knows what's going to happen. It's more the teachings are offered as rules of training. So there's almost the assumption that it may not be perfect. Sure. <laughs> you know, but if we have that framework and a reference point for watching what we're doing and watching our actions, it makes us more aware of our choices. And then in meditation and in kind of in mindfulness in general, you are aware of those those pangs of remorse that you're talking about that might come from having made yeah. a, a poor a poor yes. ethical decision yeah. at some point, which which then were uh, in some ways are a more profound guide to what your behavior ought to be in the yeah, future well, exactly. than a set of rules. Yeah, and and here there's a, I think there's an interesting distinction, you know, as we navigate this arena of our actions and mm. seeing. Yeah, this this has really been helpful. This was not. This you know, I, I did something that really did cause harm in some way, and we learn from it. But then, to really understand the difference between what we might call regret or remorse and guilt, and this is really important because very often, if people do have some ethical standard, and then they do something which violates that in some way, people's minds can often go to guilt and feeling guilty about having done it. But what, what I've investigated with that, has, experiencing it myself, hmm. really seeing that guilt is just another trick of the ego. There's a lot of selfing in guilt. Sure. It's like, I'm so bad, I did this. That's very different than kind of a wise remorse or a wise regret, where there's just an understanding that, oh, this action was not that skillful. Can, can I practice refraining from that in the future? It's right. a very different mindset than the self-laceration of guilt. I'm forgetting what those two things are. There are these, like, they don't come up a lot because I think they're really not attractive to Western audiences, but, like, these two kind of, like, yeah. guardians, yeah, yeah. They, there's shame, and what's the other yeah. one? Is it so remorse? Like, <laughs> well, there's, yeah. there's, there's two, two mind states the Buddha called the guardians of the world. Right. But, unfortunately, the English translation <laughs> of them is not that great. It's often translated as moral shame and moral dread. <laughs> right. Yeah, so th that translation does not convey really the essence of what those mind states are. But it is the sense of conscience, sure. you know, where we do something and inwardly we know, oh, that wasn't so good. Right. So, so that's a guardian, ha having a conscience. And the other is, and this is a little trickier for people, but I found it really valuable. The other is... You might say fear or uh, fear in a wholesome way, not not unwholesome way, of what wise people may think of what we did. Right, 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 right. So this actually hmm. this actually goes in a way to the question of freedom, because often people have the idea that freedom implies 
not caring about what other people think. You know, I was just, okay, I'm going to just follow my right whatever right. follow sort of, my impulse maybe the worst excesses of what i somewhat admire as the youth movement of the late 60s but mm-hmm. you know freedom as you right. know total anything goes of anything yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. whereas here the buddha is saying well you know there are many people in the world wiser than we are and often much wiser than we are right and so we can we can hold our understanding of them, if we have especially particular people that we respect. Right. And to just have that reference point, well, what would they think about this action? Again, not in a way to make us feel guilty, but just as a reference point for our own investigation of it. I think I think something you said there, you know, about um, especially those we admire and respect is really important because it seems to me that it's it's essential that if you're looking to someone as a model of probity or whatever, you actually understand what they're about on some deep level, as opposed to, again, you know, just a thou shalt not. Abraham Lincoln would never have said that, you know, or whatever. But, (laughs) but, you know, yeah, to understand, to feel them, you know, on on some deep level. I guess that's what teachers can do. Yeah, yeah. 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 There's another interesting aspect to to the practice of ethical behavior and it is a practice it's a training i mean very few of us are perfect in it right you know and especially given the complexity of our life in Mm -hmm. these times Mm -hmm. we'll we'll often kind of do things or act from things that may not be the most wholesome in the world skillful is the word skillful yeah Yeah. you use a lot Yeah. yeah but if we have this as a frame of reference that this is a valuable thing to practice you know to train in it's also appreciating that our own ethical behavior is giving the gift of fearlessness to everyone we meet mm. because we're saying with our actions and our lives, you need not fear me. I'm not going to do anything that's going to harm you. Right. Because we're so committed to a life of non-harming, a life of ethics. So in, just in terms of interpersonal relationships, sure. people then feel safe around people who are committed ethical behavior you know i was thinking the other day i think i may have even mentioned it on a on a recent program for a lot of us right now it feels a little bit like a time of culture war that is to say a lot of people feel some of their deepest values threatened by things that are happening out there in the world around them in a way that they were not prominently doing that long ago I know you and other teachers talk about the idea of fierce action at times that isn't somehow anger attached. This gets a little yeah. complicated, like how, when and how it's okay to fight, you know, if you, yeah, if, so, you uh, if you have to. Yeah. So for me, kind of a big piece of that koan, <laughs> that, that, you know, question, and this is, I, I try to practice this myself and in my own life, Mm. if I'm feeling reactive to some, whether it's a person or a situation or a bigger issue, but if I'm feeling a strong reactivity in my mind, when possible, my first, my first interest is in freeing myself from my own reactivity Mm -hmm. and then addressing the situation either as fiercely or as gently as is called for, but it's not coming from that place of reactivity. It's coming from a place of balance. It's coming from a place of discernment. And so generally, whatever we do turns out to be more effective 
than if we're simply venting our anger. So unless you're at some fairly kind of realized state, that might involve waiting a bit to right. respond. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like, as I think yeah. I heard Thich Nhat Hanh talk about at some point, walk out of the, you know, go out of the room yeah, if but, you need to. Sure, when, when, yeah. when possible. When possible. <laughs> I, I think it is a good thing because if we're caught up in our own reactivity and judgment and anger or whatever it may be, mm. uh, we're not going to be seeing clearly. You know, we're going to be seeing the situation through the filter of those mind states. And so it's just much better to realize that to see what we can do to come to a place of freedom from that and then respond. And I've had so many, so many examples and situations of that in my life. And it's always better if I do my own work first and then engage. One place I wanted to go with this was, you know, I was thinking about what brings people into the practice and then where they go in the practice. Mm -hmm. I want to preface it by saying that for myself, as I think for a lot of practitioners, it probably began with uh, suffering and the sense that, you know, ordinary life was filled with a great deal of difficulty that wasn't even necessarily practical or situational, mm -hmm. but just interpersonal and human, mm -hmm. you know, the human existential mm -hmm. condition. And that something must be done. First, to say, I think people can be drawn to the practice from a whole range of motivations. Mm. So for a lot of people, it is some kind of suffering that's going on in their lives, whether it's physical or emotional, psychological, whatever. And there just becomes this urge to figure it out. You know, yeah. well, how can, I, how can I relieve this suffering? And so at some point they may find that to be a doorway into the path. Right. But there are also other motivations. So for myself, for example, I studied philosophy in college, and my mind just has that kind of philosophic investigative bent. Right. So for me, even though I was going through the typical angst of a <laughs> young, you know, 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old trying to figure out who I am and what my life is about, and but the main, the main kind of motive for my getting interested in practice was just interest in the mind. Right. It's like, okay, well, what what is this phenomena of the mind and everything that arises within it? And so I just had a tremendous interest. Would you say that temperamentally you were not an especially angsty person at that age? I mean, as compared to say other 20 year olds or, you know, Goethe's young Werther right. or something? Um. <laughs> Well, it's hard to know, comparatively <laughs> speaking. I mean, in terms I, of your sense of yourself at the time or kind of how people seem was, to respond it, to it, you. It wasn't so much the angst of like feeling insecure or things like that. It was more the angst of in some way not really knowing who I was in, mm -hmm. the, in kind of the deepest way. Mm -hmm. I remember one time, this was when I was in the Peace Corps in, in Thailand and just getting into all this you know, just beginning a little bit of meditation, a little bit of contact with the Buddhist teachings. Uh, and I remember just looking into a mirror one morning and just, who is it that's behind, behind the face, right. <laughs> behind the reflection? Who's in there? <laughs> you know, so that was the kind of questioning that was of tremendous interest to me. Mm. So that's what motivated me. Mm. It could be people have a strong, a really strong spiritual sense of the possibility of enlightenment, of awakening. Yeah, you talk and about Deepama, Deep who I know has yeah. been a friend yeah. and teacher, yeah, yeah. a friend and teacher who yeah. like quickly yeah. Yeah. achieved yeah. great high states. Yeah. 
And so, so this, just to say that there's a whole range of motivations that can bring people to the practice. Mm. In whatever way we come to it, and that'll vary, I think the first step, and it's the first step which can take years and years and years. Right. So by first, I mean first and ongoing. Could you describe that as sort of like building a, a reasonably stable practice or yeah, you know, something like that? Well, well like exactly. I regularly it, do yeah, this yes, or that. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's understanding the methodology. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that takes just like learning some new sport or a musical instrument. Right. It's learning the technique, you know, and even though the technique is not the essence of the path, it's the vehicle for exploring the path. Right. And so we need to give some time to developing those skills and tools. So that can take, you know, many years of practice to, to really feel comfortable mm-hmm. in our understanding of the methodology of inquiry, right. which is what the meditation practice is about. And then there's the opening to what one learns. You know, so it's like mindfulness is not the end. Mindfulness, the real question we want to hold once we've, once we've learned the methodology right. is what do I learn from being mindful? <laughs> sure. You know, and so that, that, that's it's a tool. Yeah, exactly. And a tool for what it's a tool for wisdom. And so then that becomes the heart of what we're doing. It's no longer, we no longer have to give so much emphasis just to the details of the technique. Right. But we're more than at that phase, more into the insight and understanding that comes from it. And there are many, you know, there are so many different techniques, so many, what, yeah. is translated as skillful means and people to the extent that they can might join a sangha or a community um i can say that in my own experience i'm i'm not the most trusting of community because mm-hmm. of things that yes, happen yes. within community um or i'll go and i'll start to feel that there are kind of power dynamics at work that yeah. i'm not interested in or whatever yeah. and so i know that like traditionally the idea is that the community and also your teacher would kind of help you individually mm-hmm. tweak yes. you know as you go along yeah. the skillful means i mean for other people right for people who find themselves isolated in the practice for whatever reason which i'm less than i was but i've started there what would you recommend in terms of how to not go crazy <laughs> thinking oh should i do metta meditation for loving kindness mm-hmm. should i focus on the whole of my breath should right, i focus right. on my nostrils <laughs> right, right. you know whatever whatever right. yeah like you know in our tradition of Right. Buddhist practice. Which I should say for the audience, that's within Theravada Buddhism, right. it's Vipassana right. or insight right. meditation and yeah. practice. Yeah. So within this tradition, the term for a teacher is very interesting. It's Kalyanamitta, which means spiritual friend. Mm. So it's not, within this system, there's not kind of the same kind of practices of guru devotion that are in other traditions of Buddhism. And, right. And, so if we just take that notion of a teacher as being a spiritual friend for somebody who may not be connected to a particular teacher or a particular community, but they could look in their lives, just if they just have that notion, well, who would be a good spiritual friend for me? Mm. And it might be just somebody they know who's been in practice longer than they have. Right. You know, may not be, have the formal designation of teacher, but maybe a little further along the path. So that's one 
way sure of just connecting freeing oneself like from the whole notion of guru and uh, and kind of but who do i trust as a yeah. as a friend yeah. within this yeah. these conversations yeah, exactly these thoughts, exactly whatever. i think it's not so hard to find people like that in our lives sure so that's the first thing and the second is in the beginning when people are first exploring this i think it's fine to shop around so to speak mm -hmm. and meet different teachers and go to different communities and some may resonate and some may not but we're just open to the possibility yeah. of connecting with somebody that really does resonate with us yeah and, and there are so you, many teachers that, i mean yeah and so many and people will respond to different yes, exactly. things i mean i'll tell you for myself initially the tibetan angle on things like when i went to it it drove me absolutely crazy because mm -hmm. i tend to over intellectualize right. and so suddenly you had this pantheon of you know what might be right. symbolic what might be actual <laughs> beings you know but i mean i can i can understand now much later how mm -hmm. each of those you know Avalokiteshvara right, right. Um, and you know all, each of those different kind of entities or figures or right, symbols right. can be a, a skillful means yeah. of focusing on one thing yeah, or another yeah, compassion yeah. love yeah. you know whatever yeah, yeah. For, for some people yeah, and for, for some other people, people it doesn't work them crazy <laughs> yeah so so that's why I say it's just yeah. it's worth just exploring a little bit and sure. see which tradition which method resonates basically I, I really encourage people to find the practice that inspires them to do it. <laughs> right, 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 right. If yeah. you're, if you're, right, if you've been discouraged completely, then that's probably yeah, not the exactly. right yeah, one for you. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I think here's the thing. You know, I, I, and I mean, this is nothing new to you. You're having this conversation for I don't know how how many years now? Forty, fifty. Yeah. yeah. So you know the. The thing is, people want to know kind of how's it going, and there's always this. There's always this. I mean, I've, time and time again, you know, I've read Ajahn Chah. I've read, you know, I've heard you and other teachers and saying, don't worry too much about where you're at, yes, kind of thing. Yes, like especially yes. if you're feeling yeah. like my practice is yeah. stuck, it's not going anywhere. But then. I think the question for people is how do I distinguish that from just real life without a practice? Like if I'm if I feel stuck, that is to say, yes, for right. ten years, I would then probably it's not working. Right? Yes, <laughs> and if you're feeling stuck for yeah. ten years, I would have yeah, yeah. I would have investigated that much earlier than ten years. <laughs> okay, so there are a few deeper issues okay. here. One is getting good guidance about your practice. Sure, because sometimes we do get stuck in certain patterns that we think is the right approach, but actually is not. Sure. You know, and to speak with somebody who has more experience, very often they can help us unhook from whatever thing is causing that struggle. In a more general way, it really raises the whole question of how we work with doubt in the mind. Mm. And doubt is one of the classic hindrances that the Buddha talked about. So this is not unique, you know, it's not, Oh, I'm the only one who has doubts about this. Right. No, doubt, doubt, like desire or anger or sleepiness or restlessness. These are qualities of mind that have been recognized as being particularly seductive, meaning easy to get caught up in them. Sure. Doubt in one way is the most difficult of all of the hindrances. Okay. Because very often doubt comes masquerading as wisdom. We hear these voices in the mind, sure. oh, this isn't working and maybe I should be doing that. And it's almost as if we're taking that to be the voice of wisdom rather than wrecking, oh, this is just doubt. Right. <laughs> you know? But here's the thing, and, yeah. and, 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 and 
now I feel like some kind of devil's advocate <laughs> asshole or something. But basically, like, <laughs> if I were trying to run a totalitarian regime, I would also tell people yeah, that doubt no, is no. the enemy. You yes, know? yes, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, if you are taught to not trust your own doubt, that feels tricky to me. No, so, so there are, so for example, if a doubt arises, it's worth exploring. And, and really take, okay, is, is there something here? Is it, is it the voice of wisdom? Right. Or is it just doubt? And so it's not just to mm. default to dismissing it. Mm. You know, it's like, oh, so what's really going on here? And how am I getting caught in this? And does this have some validity? I and see. here again, sometimes we can see that for ourselves. Sometimes we might need some guidance in just looking at our own mind with clarity. Mm. Um, so I'll just give you an example. There was many times in my practice, but one in particular is coming to mind now. I was in India having long stretch of intensive practice. And I went through this period where it just felt nothing was happening. It was just slogging away. And, and so I had those kind of, those kind of doubts. Uh, what is going on? Nothing's, it's not working. That, that was basically, it's just not working anymore. Right. Uh, but I, for me personally, I never really doubted the practice. I never really doubted the Dharma and the value of it. Right. And some people might, yeah, but yeah. for me, that wasn't it. It was more about doubt of my own capacity. Ah. Or that was the doubt. Got it. And so in seeing, and just I was looking at my mind, and this was over, you know, weeks, weeks and weeks of uh, practice in the same feeling. And then at a certain point, I just, I just said to myself, Joseph, just sit and walk. Which is the form of the intensive practice. Sitting meditation, walking meditation, sit and walk, sit and walk, surrender to the Dharma. Let the Dharma take care of it. Mm. Stop worrying about exactly. what, whether of, it's about working result. or not. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as I connected with that approach, it really, it really made everything very simple because then I wasn't assessing my practice. Gotcha. And, and I was just, okay, it, this may be a, a flat period or a rough period. I'm going to just sit and walk and sit and walk and trust the Dharma. So, so in that case, doubt specifically was, was a hindrance. It was oh, the doubt, obstacle. Absolutely. It was the thing. I, I sometimes think yeah. of that as the yes, but mind. Like I, I think of like someone says to you something that is, seems wise and true. And then the mind goes, <laughs> yes, but... <laughs> Yes, but yeah, yeah. surely, you know, whatever. Yeah, exactly. And there's like a million different versions yes. of the way that we kind of skitter yes, away yeah. mercurially from, from, from surrender, yeah. as you put it. I think there is a place as we're entering into a path of practice yeah. for a real discriminating intelligence to, to really get a sense of, oh, what's the path? What's the method? What's the teaching? Right. So we're not just kind of charging ahead blindly, you know, on a kind of naive trust. Right. We really kind of examine things a little bit and does it make sense, you know, even on a conceptual level, you know, because that's the level that we first may connect with the teachings. Right. So, so there is that, that wise discernment at the beginning, which is necessary. But once we've done that and we feel, it's like we've done, the, we've done our homework, you know, and we've, we feel a certain level of faith or trust in a particular practice or a particular path. So at that point, we really have to have the attitude of, 
let me just try this for some period of time and see what the effect is. And so I can, I can see for myself sure. what the result is. But in that period of time, there'll be a lot of ups and downs. And so if every time there's a difficulty or a struggle, oh no, this isn't working, we never get any place. After the initial discernment, this seems like a good thing to do, then we really have to commit to just persevering through the ups and downs, mm. at least for some period of time. Sure. You know, it's... I think there's great potential for this kind of thing, like I was saying before, mm -hmm. to be abused by yeah, sort of yeah. bad teachers, yeah, yeah. you know, to be like, oh, that's just out, you know, yeah, or yeah, no, don't, don't do that, that's right. fear, and to essentially discourage investigation. Yeah. I mean, I, I would generally be cautious <laughs> of teachers who are dismissive. I think a wiser approach as, and kind of I work a lot, you know, with different uh, meditators around this, when different issues come up or doubts or uncertainty or any other problem. It's not about dismissing them. It's really trying to investigate and understanding them and seeing, right. okay, how am I getting caught by this? Is there something of value? Is there not? So if somebody's just dismissing, that would be a red flag for me. <laughs> right, that right. They're not really connecting with where I am. Going back briefly to mm. sila and ethics, and we should say again for the audience that like very broadly for non-monks, eth Buddhist ethics in the tradition that we're talking about comes down to not killing, not lying or speaking in a way that's harmful, non-intoxication, mm -hmm. and we can talk mm -hmm. a little bit about that. Uh, not, not sexually abusing mm -hmm. people or, or you know, um, behaving irresponsibly sexually. And then, yeah, not taking what's not given, right? right? I actually want to ask a question about the intoxication thing. Specifically, I wonder whether you have any knowledge or experience either, you know, personally or peripherally of ayahuasca. No. None whatsoever. I mean, I haven't, I haven't taken that. Uh, I know or many other people who, who have. and uh, Because yeah. I, so it's my experience mm -hmm. and I, we can't go too far if you don't have personal experience of it, but it's my experience and I'm very, as you've heard, mm -hmm. skeptical and cautious and try to be thoughtful about mm -hmm. these things, that that particular thing, which is a combination of mm -hmm. two plants that's mm -hmm. been drunk in Central and South America mm -hmm. for a couple thousand years, so they say, has an effect very similar to like a kind of a concentrated vipassana mm -hmm. effect right. i mean taking you directly to contemplation and insight into mm -hmm. the things that you might be struggling right. with right. internally and not an escape into yeah, a fantasy yeah. land mm -hmm. or anything uh, of the sort and it occurs to me that like the buddha would never have had any experience with that thing didn't exist where he was you know they had soma mm -hmm. i guess so i don't know you know I, I i wonder sometimes what how the tradition would if in fact that turned out to be useful how the tradition might respond to that i mean i assume yeah. monastics would say absolutely not right um <laughs> is this just a non-starter here <laughs> well, so i would say two things i mean i've had different i haven't taken that particular drug but back in the day you know, Mushrooms, I've, I've had yeah, experience yeah. with, with a whole bunch of different drugs. And so I have the experience of what can happen and things that were useful and things, you know, experiences that were not useful. <laughs> right, right, right. So there was the whole range. So I would say, you know, if somebody's taking that and there really is some insight that comes from it and hopefully in a positively transforming way. Right. So then it's helpful. The, I don't know if caution is the right word, but 
just to frame it, even with these experiences, and I've had some of them, mm. where something quite powerful can happen, but then we still need... The grounding in the day-to-day -day moving. Yeah, yeah. We, we, it's, almost, it's almost as if our practice needs to catch up to the experience. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe the, maybe the drugs or whatever propelled us to an experience that would have taken a long time just through meditation. Yeah. And so it gives us a glimpse of something and some real insight. But it, my experience is that it's generally not completely integrated because it's not coming from our own inner resources. Hmm. You know, it's like the, the energy of it was coming from an external source. I understand. And, and so even in those situations where, where it's felt to be helpful, I don't see that as a substitute for practice. I think, okay, this shows us something. And then using the practice to integrate that and to develop the inner resources to come to that space, not dependent on I, something external. You know, when we talk about dependence on external things, I mean, scripture is external. Teachers are external. It's always both. You know, that is to say we have, we are receiving things from outside that we then need to transform through our own yeah. practice. I mean, yeah, so, I think that's true. I think there is perhaps a qualitative difference between the input from a book and the input from a drug. I mean, so people can have a certain experience from, from some kind of drug or something that has really been positive for them. And the, the caution would be, oh, well, now I got it. And got it in the sense, yeah, for, for that time, maybe we did really see something really valuable and important. But as I said, we haven't really integrated into our energy system yep. so that that becomes accessible whenever we attend. The energy that makes those experiences possible is coming from an external source. It's like we're dropping something in that just is an explosion of energy. Got you. That then is used, can be used to see a lot of different things. So then the question, okay, can I develop that energy potential within myself? It's not dependent. So that's all. And no, so no, it's just it, understanding that. And, and sort of like, you know, putting aside for the question, for a second, the question of the fundamental difference between taking something in from the outside mm. and bringing it up from the inside. I, I'm thinking about this in terms of a couple of things. I mean, one you know, the jhanic states, you know, if mm -hmm. people are experiencing these states of intense concentration and, and the, the sort of caution that is always given, which is like, you can get, uh, you can believe that you've achieved enlightenment mm -hmm. because you had a meditation right. that was, right. yeah. felt like an incredible breakthrough. Yeah. But even there, like there's further yes. to go. Yes. Yes. I'm also thinking about it in terms of the idea of faith and whatever it is that kind of leads you forward in the pack practice. So you spoke about a glimpse of yeah, something, right. yeah. you know, if that can be a, a thing that leads you forward, you know, yes. again, so, as opposed to a thing you get trapped yes, in. Yes, yes. <laughs> so I'm Our, not asking you to advocate the yeah, use yeah. of ayahuasca. No, no, yeah, 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 it's, yeah. it's just putting it in some kind yeah, of yeah, framework. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think care is needed when we do have, one might say, revelatory <laughs> experience mm -hmm. of something. Of any kind, yeah. Yeah, I think care is needed to not rush to a conclusion about what that experience was. Right. And one of my one of my mantras in general about meditation practice and all the different experiences that can happen right. is don't draw conclusions. Mm -hmm. Because countless number of times just in my meditation practice, I would be having some experience and the thought, oh, now I got it. Right. Okay, this is it. Right. And then a week later or a month later or whatever. Oh, no, it wasn't that. It's this. <laughs> well, and, and conclusions are a, are a con conceptual framework. And the words that you use to frame them, they're a framework 
that that sticks you in a particular place. Whereas the idea of enlightenment, the the Dharma, is that it is an ongoing unfolding of experience that you can't really pin down in that way. Like if you had actually achieved, you know, if you had actually achieved enlightenment as the Buddha did, which is not something any of us should necessarily expect, you know, in our lifetimes, but there wouldn't be any box to put it in. No, no clear, simple box. Do you disagree with everything I just said? Yes, you clearly do. You disagree with everything no, I just said? No. <laughs> I think I would just express it differently. Okay, okay, okay. I was trying to say that, like you said, don't... Don't draw conclusions. Don't draw conclusions. And I thought of conclusions as a kind of a, a form of selfing or of making things real or reifying things that are actually yeah. in flux. That's Yes, all. but I, I guess the hesitation okay. would be that <laughs> as we go through different experiences, and especially if we happen to have genuine experiences of some level of awakening... So there are ways of conceptualizing what happened, mm, you know, mm, so I'm, mm, it's not mm. that I'm, I think like all... this was the first jhana, the second yeah, jhana, whatever. that kind of there, stuff, yeah, yeah. There, there are, this is a well-trodden path, well-mapped. Gotcha, yeah. yeah. It's just that we can often misinterpret our experience. And so it was more, don't draw conclusions, maybe say, don't draw conclusions right away. You know, because we can have some experience and take it to be something that it's not. So it's not that you, one is incapable of judging necessarily what has happened to one, but that it might take a, a lot more time. Correct. And okay. it's very hard in the midst of a process to assess the process. Sure. Right. When we're right in the, the middle of it. Gotcha. And, and so it, it just, it often takes time to let things settle and to really mm. get perhaps a more realistic understanding of what just happened. Mm. So as an example, so, you know, if I have some fantastic experience and, oh, this is it, you know, I'm enlightened <laughs> or however we, however we frame it. And then, you know, in the following days and weeks, we find ourselves just as <laughs> neurotically afflicted as ever. <laughs> so we might then question, well, maybe my assessment of what happened was not as complete as it might have been. Or, or, wor or worse, we might like doubt, the kind of doubt might creep in that goes, and therefore my whole judgment and everything is suspect and this is all BS. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. Which so that can a, happen a, too. An unfortunate... Yeah. So that's why I say it's, yeah, yeah. it's once we have a certain level of kind of trust mm. in the path and in the practice, I've just found it really helpful, at least for periods of time, although for me it's now it's very ingrained, but just the trust in the Dharma, just do the practice, let it unfold, don't rush to conclusions right. and see, see how it unfolds. And that just feels a much more balanced and measured way. And so going back to the ayahuasca. <laughs> and so it's just having that, you know, we have some kind of powerful experience, not to jump to conclusions of what, sure. what it was and what it means, but just let it, let it integrate and see. To, to your point about kind of letting things happen and letting them unfold, this might be a good moment for our kind of surprise vector. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, for the audience, this is, I'm, I'm holding a black box of cards called Oblique Strategies. This was created by Brian Eno and Peter Schmidt uh, in 1975. And they are conversation starters. I sometimes think of them as sort of uh, Zen koans, uh, statements that we can use how we will. And we're gonna use them here just to take the conversation in a different direction. 
Um, so Joseph, <laughs> if you would do the honor, Uh-oh. I'd like I'd picking like, the card. Like you to pick one of the cards. And yeah. and the rule here, by the way, is that you you don't get to pick again. <laughs> In terms of like going with what oh, happens. Right. I don't like that card. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Whatever you pick, that's it. So, what do you got? Trust in the you of now. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> one of my uh, patterns in something like that is what exactly does that mean? So what, what was the actual quote again? Trust, trust, I think in, it was trust in the you of now. Right, yeah. So, so your, your analytical mind is kicking in and going, yeah, what, okay, what do well, they mean well, by well, that sentence? Is, yeah. yeah, what does that actually mean? So Let's get philosophical, so, yeah. So trust in, in the you of now, what does trust mean? Does it mean being aware of? Does it mean believing? Mm. Does it mean surrendering to? So even that word trust in different contexts can mean a whole bunch of things. Sure. So, for example, we have some emotion or mind state that's arising in the now. Mm. So trust in the you. And leaving aside for the, the moment the, the question of self and selflessness. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, so yeah, just yeah. we'll take it conventionally. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so the, the, the me of now might be greed. I just, just in walking to the studio, past the... Uh, Bonobos in the corner oh, of the yeah. clothing store. And so I look, look in the window, oh, that pair of pants, that looks nice. I don't need pants. <laughs> I don't right. need another pair. But I'll bet on the way out I'm going to stop in and take a ha- look. I've been having that same thought for four years. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, <laughs> yeah. so now, so okay, so there's this moment of desire, you know, in the mind. So trust in the me that's now. So what does, what does it mean to say trust in the greed of the moment? Mm. If one would say, oh, well, that means... Be present to it, be aware that it's here, that seems fine. If it means believe it or identify with it, I think that's not such a good thing. Right, right. Putting aside the question of what, what they meant by it, right. um, you know, as connected to these ideas that we're talking about here and these practices, I do think that for me anyway, there's something very profound in and very difficult and subtle and kind of evolving in this thing of of how to be okay with what is, which doesn't mean you're not moving in a different direction from what is, but that like how to let what is yeah. be. Well, to me, to yeah. me, that's, that is the function of awareness, of mindfulness. Mm. It's like mindfulness sees what's there in a non-judgmental way, meaning non-reactive, but it doesn't mean in a non-discerning way. And so trusting in the moment or trusting in the, the me that's now. Right. So we want to be aware of the whole range of things arising, the skillful and the unskillful. And based on that mindfulness, then to have discernment, is this skillful, is it unskillful? So that's where the tr- you could say right. trust in the moment. It's open to the moment, but it doesn't necessarily mean an abdication of discernment of whether something should be cultivated or something should be let go of. Right, right, right. And I was thinking of that phrase that comes up, you know, the mind should be open, but not so open that your brains fall out. (laughs) I haven't heard that, but I like that. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And our brains fall out a lot. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And that's where I think the path and the teachings, if somebody at bad moments can, you know, a person can get neurotic about it. You have a thought, you analyze, or you have an impulse, you analyze whether it's skillful or unskillful, but you can kind of tie yourself up in knots with that stuff as well, which is not to say you should follow every impulse, but there, the, sometimes there needs to be a kind of relaxing 
I yeah, feel like well. of the, the mind that is trying to analyze at all times. There's a kind of analysis that is unskillful. If it's tying oneself up in knots, yeah. I think that would be a good sign it's unskillful. Yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> to me, that implies basically a lot of self-judgment, you know, and that would be one way of tying yeah. oneself up. And we, we see maybe these unskillful patterns in the mind and then, oh my God, and we become judgmental of ourselves. Right. So I'll tell just a, a little meditation story. So this was time when I was in Burma practicing with Saida Upandita, right. who's a very demanding, very demanding teacher. And we'd go in and I would give my report on my meditation practice. And he would, he would just often point out all the different defilements in my mind, which were contained within my meditation report, you know, right. just aspects of greed or aversion or whatever. And he would, he would just point them out. And at first, I just felt terrible, you know, when, when he would point it out, because it was I was like be, getting red marks all over yeah, your essay. Yeah, and like, I would yeah, be judging yeah. myself. You know, this is my teacher. And so I'd be tied up in knots a little bit, you know, around that. And then you know, almost every time I went in, in one form or another, he would do this. So then one time I went in, I gave my report, and he just started listing like, I don't know, five or 10 different defilements <laughs> that were manifesting. And when he did that, when he went to the whole list, I just started to laugh because it just struck me as funny. <laughs> and it was so interesting. As soon as I stopped reacting to them being pointed out, he stopped doing it. So mm. it was all about it. He was not judging me. He was just pointing out, but also he kept pushing the button of my reactivity mm. till I stopped reacting. Mm. And as soon as I lightened up and cause, oh yeah, th this is what's here. You yeah, know, in your me because it's not like in your mind. It's like initially, it's like okay, Joseph, I have yeah, all these exactly, defilements, and exactly. Pandita yeah, yeah, does not have them, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I am terrible. Yeah, yeah, and 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 they're not. And when you're able to recognize that, like they're not yours. Yes, yes, yeah. exactly. And and so I, I think it's very helpful in meditation practice mm. and in life in general to have a sense of humor about one's own mind mm. because. Somebody, one, one, one meditator came in one time in the middle of an intensive retreat and his report was, you know what I've discovered is that the mind has no pride. <laughs> and anybody who's sad and meditate, you know, the mind will just, will do so many different things and all the old patterns and habits of thought right. and, and emotion. So all this stuff is going to come up if we can hold it lightly and just, oh yeah, sure. this is what's arising. But with discernment of seeing, oh, this is a pattern can I just watch it come and go? Oh, this is a pattern that would be worth cultivating. I think it can get tricky probably, and I'm sure you have experience working with students like this, you know, where I think it can be tricky for people, A, if they've experienced serious trauma, or yes, B, yes. for whatever reason, they are extremely neurotic yes. for something. Maybe they were, their parents always yes, told yeah. them they were no good yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. And they're looking around no, them yes. and they're going like, you know, I kind of got a lot more defilements going on than that guy <laughs> over there, you know, which is, you know, granted, you can never right. quite tell, but... Mm. But no, still, like it can feel like an insurmountable mountain. Yeah. So this people, this, is, you know. this is where good guidance is really helpful, mm. because as you point out, like in a in a broad range of mental activity, a sense of humor can really be helpful. Mm. But there are certain situations where that's not the right approach. I mean, you mentioned trauma, and so which is coming up a lot these days. People are coming to the practice often with some kind of traumatic background. And that needs a lot of care. That, that needs a lot of skill right. in how to work with that and a lot of empathy and connectedness 
and skill in in what's specific the right approach. Skill, specific, yeah. it's yeah. different. Yeah. yeah, and so it's just to acknowledge that 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 at different times we need different approaches, and to have some, a guide or a teacher who is skilled in a range with respect to a range of experiences is so helpful. Yeah, and I mean, then over time, I guess learning to see oneself with compassion that even if you are climbing a much steeper mountain than someone else still that's that's not about you know you being bad that's you know there's 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 one there's one image the buddha used it's in one of the discourses where he said uh, there are four kinds of people there are people living in the shadow going towards more shadow Hmm. there are people living in the shadow going towards light there are people living in light going to the shadow. <laughs> there are people in light going to more light. Mm. And so we're all, we all come in with a whole range of circumstances. And whether, so you could think of shadow and light as being suffering and ease right. or whatever, whatever kind of frame like that you want to put on it. So it's not the particular circumstances of our lives and our minds is not what's key. First, we have no control over it. Right. Uh, we came into these circumstances and this is what's going on. Most important is the direction we're going. So even if we're in a place of suffering, are we going towards more understanding and more right. light? Or are we living in a way that's just enmeshing us further in the suffering? And we could be in good circumstances and either understanding it and cultivating that which will keep us in good circumstances. Mm. Or, and we see this a lot in the world, people in wonderful circumstances, but filled with greed you know, or filled with avarice or whatever. Right. So they're in the light going towards more shadow. Uh, right, right, right. So it's the direction that's important. Where there's so, I think, so much beauty and hope in this practice is that, again, as you said, people may be in one of these yeah, four yeah. places, but these are not intrinsic, inherent, no. fixed qualities. Not this at is all. A, a growth mindset, as yes, yes. Carol Dweck put it, mm-hmm. you know. You are where you are and you... The question is, where are you going? Where are you going, right? Because I feel like we get the message a lot from advertising from everywhere that like there are certain kinds of people in this, you know, this uh, no. these are the qualities of a successful person, yeah, you know, yeah, or yeah. whatever, like a lot of bullshit about yeah, yeah. like, you know, if you're like this, yeah. you're screwed, yeah, you know, yeah. and that's not, that's not the opposite all. here. Yeah. You know, one, one of the teachers who you mentioned before, uh, this woman, Deepama, mm. who is this extraordinary being. I mean, she was in some way the most inspiring role model for me because she was a lay person who, who underwent tremendous personal suffering. I mean, she lost her husband. She lost two of her three children. That, so she was overcome with grief for years. I mean, it was debilitating grief. But she was living in Burma at the time. She ended up going to a monastery and practicing with one of my other teachers. And she just had the background, as, as you mentioned, very quickly, you know, realized high stages of awakening and concentration. And right. So here's somebody who was suffering tremendously. She thought she was going to die from the grief if she didn't find a way out of it. So somebody who's in huge amount of suffering, going to this incredible life of light and wisdom and love. And so it's just to that point that we're not, yeah. f- we're not fixed in any situation. That depends how 
we understand it, how we relate to it, what we do with it. And it's probably, it would probably be a trap to start thinking that like, okay, the more that I'm suffering, the more likely, the faster, no. you know, the express way, you know, to enlightenment well, is well, going to happen. Well, it could be if yeah, we're yeah, on the right path. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, the, in the Buddhist psychology, they talk about different personality types. Right. So the, kind of the greed type, you know, who's just want desire. Right. And there's the aversive type who just keep sees what's wrong with everything. <laughs> and then the deluded type, which really doesn't see what's going on at all. And each of these has a positive transformation. So for the greed type, when it's transformed into really faith and the aversive type, there's a keen intelligence there that a lot of what triggers the aversion is a clear seeing but it's going to the aversive side. Too much discernment or whatever well, in a way. Yeah, like, in a particular direction, yeah, so yeah. In, in an aversive way. Hmm. And for the deluded, the positive side is equanimity. So hmm. what I find interesting, hmm. it's said that for the aversive types, the angry types, they suffer more, but they get enlightened quicker. <laughs> the greed type suffers less, but it takes longer. <laughs> Because the aversion is inherently unpleasant. And so for people who are conditioned in that way, often there's a greater motivation to, okay, how can I come out of this suffering? This is unpleasant. Whereas the greed type, right. they can be deluded into the pleasantness of it. So they're not as motivated necessarily. Okay, how can I come out of this? Sort of, sort of like the devas in the deva yeah, realms yeah, who are yeah, just yeah. enjoying the, yeah. the, the nectar yeah, or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, so even though the aversive types suffer more, they can take solace in the fact that, oh, but this, I'm going to get enlightened quicker. <laughs> yeah, so that's the, that's the prize. Cons consolation prize. Yeah, yeah exactly. For, 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 for those of us who, who suffer from that particular yeah, affection. Yeah. Joseph Goldstein, yeah. I um, I have to let you know let you go, but huh. but thank you for uh, this has been a, a again Great. a wonderful conversation. Yeah, yeah, loved it. So there you have it, folks. That's our first episode of 2020. Um, I'm so glad it was with Joseph, who was my first guest in 2019. Um, I want to I wanna say that his most recent book, Mindfulness, A Practical Guide to Awakening, is extremely useful for anyone on any stage of the path of mindfulness, meditation, Buddhist practice. Um, it's really the culmination of all of his years of teaching and, and work. It's kind of a magnum opus and well worth reading and keeping close by. I've got some big announcements coming up soon, so if you haven't already and if you'd like to stay in touch with me and know what's going on, please come over to my website. That's jasongotts.com, J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S.com. And there's a pop-up on the homepage and the contact page if you have ad blocker down on my page that you can just put your email address and I'll be writing to folks soon. And I'll see you next week with something completely different.